Hello and welcome. Uh, this is for History 302, History of Pop Culture. Uh, this is our opening lecture. Um, this is probably going to be the most, um, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for here, least concrete of our lectures. Generally, I'm on a specific topic. Uh, this one's a little bit more intellectual, a little bit more um, kind of out there a little bit, kind of hard to define. Uh, the other ones are going to be a little bit more solid, but... Uh, today we're just talking about culture. Like, what is culture? This is kind of the introductory lecture to this class. So, uh, I'll give you a second to get the PowerPoint, but don't go to the second slide yet. Just kind of, kind of hang out here for a second. So the first thing we have to define is what is culture? Um, those of you who've had me before, you probably know that uh, by my research and training, I'm a cultural historian. Um, a lot of history focuses upon, you know, politics or um, economics, war, stuff like that. And that is accurate. I mean, those are definitely important when it comes to human history, but also I'd say culture is up there. Um, I like to define culture as the stuff that's uh, in your head 90% of the time. Like, basically, you know, you know, you might be thinking about politics or, you know, world affairs. Actually, nowadays you're probably thinking about politics a lot. Same thing with the pandemic stuff, so normally <laughs> the stuff that's in your head 90% of the time is culture. Uh, if you want like the, uh, the, the dictionary definition of culture, I just looked it up. Uh, it's, uh, it says, the arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively. Well, that's a lot of big words. Uh, the main thing I want you to realize about culture is that it is done by humans. Uh, a lot of different things are culture because they're things that are done by humans. It's human work. It's something that a human does intellectually. You know, mankind, people, whatever you want to call it, something that a person makes or thinks about can be considered culture. Which means a lot of different things are culture. There's a lot of different things that are defined as culture. But that's, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, sometimes it's easier to say what isn't culture rather than uh, what is culture. Um, and even things that are typically considered not cultural um, actually might have cultural elements to it. Uh, generally, nature is considered not cultural. Like, you know, if, if I ever ask you on a quiz, hint, hint, uh, you know, what is not cultural? Uh, you know, something like, you know, I don't know, the leaves changing colors in of themselves is not cultural. Because that's not something that human beings necessarily do or have anything, um, any part of it happening. However, how we view the changing of the seasons is definitely cultural. I mean, we can think of all sorts of different, like, you know, celebrations for the different times of the year. Uh, going back in history, like harvest festivals, things like that. That's clearly cultural. Uh, likewise, something like reproduction. Um, sex in of itself is not cultural. You know, how we make babies and how, you know, we get new life out there that's in that's not cultural in of itself but how we view it like courtship processes um you know rituals around babies being born stuff like that that's clearly cultural so it's sometimes kind of hard to say what is and isn't culture that being said we're going to be talking a lot about types of culture uh, remember, this is a class about pop culture, but before we get into pop culture, I want to talk a little bit about the other different types of culture. So go over one slide. Uh, a big one is state culture. Uh, state culture, uh, kind of like a nationalistic identity, 
it's put forth by the government as a standard by which citizens should act and think. It's kind of like what the country says as a whole is the expectation for citizens. Uh, think of stuff like national anthems. Um, yeah, that's probably the best example I can uh, give as a, as a state culture, a national anthem, flags, things like that, really designed to uh, foster identity, kind of grow identity within a country, have very broad appeal. We're going to be talking about the different appeals of different types of culture. State culture, by its definition, very broad appeal. Can be considered to be nationalistic. That can become problematic. Uh, for instance, whenever Germany was coming into being... Uh, back in the you know 1860s, 1870s, <clears throat> um, Bismarck really went on his culture conference, basically def trying to define German culture as this you know kind of middle class, you know something great about it. It's like oh yeah, we're wonderful German culture. But then you get to like Hitler later on, where he's also claiming German culture is the best. That can get problematic. The line between state culture. Being like, hey, this is what makes our country independent. This is what makes our country unique. Versus kind of a more nationalistic. This is what makes our country better than other countries and therefore we should dominate. Can be a very thin line. Uh, we're not going to get in into that very much. I just want you to think about it. Uh, likewise, you know, a national anthem or a um, you know, flag. That could be something like state culture. Uh, what, for discussion, maybe think about some other instances of state culture. Uh, like I said, we're not going to talk about state culture too much in this class. We are going to talk a little bit more, if you go one more, about high culture. Uh, high culture is, and the words here are important, it's the culture enjoyed by a perpetual upper class. The key word there is perpetual. Uh, it is very highly dependent upon wealth and also barriers to understanding. The idea that you have to have a lot of education or familiarity to really understand or appreciate this type of culture. Um, it needs to be for people that are you know, elite. They are of a, of a perpetual upper class. Um, you know, The culture in of itself may not be understood or might be hard to understand for people who are not in this upper class. Uh, the audience for this is a very, fairly small group. Like I said, it's uh, a lot of it is direct patronage. Uh, direct patronage, you might need to know the term patron. In fact, it's a pretty important term. Uh, a patron is one whom art is made for. Uh, supports art with either finances or helping out with the living expenses or the equipment for an artist. Uh, all art is dependent upon patrons. Pretty much all artists, if they want to make a living at it, they need patrons. Um, you know, well, there's, there's making art or music or something just for your own personal enjoyment. There's nothing wrong with that. But once you want to make a living at it, like really start paying the bills, putting food on the table, you need patrons. And you need to be aware of the taste of your patrons and what your patrons are wanting. Uh, example from my own life. I come from a family of musicians. Uh, both my parents and both my siblings are professional musicians. They, my mother since passed on, but she was a professional musician. My dad was a professional musician. My sister's a professional musician. My brother was a professional musician. They had other jobs too, but they got paid for paying music. And here's the thing. There's the music they like and the music they like to play, and then there's the music that actually gets them paid. And a lot of times that is a different line right there. 
Now, are they doing high culture? Well, sometimes. Um, you know, my, my dad and sister were in the symphony, so, you know, that's definitely I consider high culture. Uh, but even, like, something like a symphony does have limited appeal. Uh, some pretty good examples of this are things, like, if you go over one slide, you're going to see, you know, Renaissance art and also uh, opera. Uh, both of these, if you look at, like, Renaissance art, that was made generally for, like, a particular family. Um, kind of highly dependent upon, like, you know, knowing these things, knowing the classical illusions. Uh, these things were not displayed worldwide. It's only nowadays where you have more um, availability to all of this art. You know, whenever Leonardo and Raphael, Michelangelo, Donatello, whenever the Ninja Turtles were making art back in the Renaissance days... Um, it was not for wide display. Generally, it's done for like the Medici family or you know just some rich patron who kept it for their own collection. So this art really had to be tailored for the individual. Uh, same thing with opera. Uh, opera, you know, classical Italian opera. That's something that's mainly done for like you know the the people who can afford it, who can afford to go to the opera, have these sensibilities. Now, when we get into America, uh, sorry, um, often approved. Uh, Sorry, often high culture is used by elites to prove their own eliteness, even though otherwise people might have it might have limited uh, appeal. Uh, you know, some of these, some of this art, some of this uh, painting, some of these operas and stuff, it's basically used by the elites to show how elite they are. You know, something like a Renaissance painting or especially a Renaissance sculpture would cost a ton of money. You know, getting an opera commissioned would cost a ton of money and time, and it's only for a fairly, you know, limited audience. Uh, if you think about somebody like, uh, I believe Mozart was, um, oh man, now I'm, now, I believe Mo, well, okay, um, one I know for sure, uh, J.S. Bach, Yo Johannes, you know, Bach, the uh, musician, he was employed by a church, and basically he had to produce a new work of music every week. You know, the church can also be a fairly elite patron in this time period. You know, he's making all this music just for the church. It kind of has a limited appeal just because the church wants to prove how, you know, yes, it's for God, but also to improve basically the goodness of the church. That's a bad example. Court musicians are a much better example. You know, the emperor or the king might have a musician on hire. They make music for him, only really played for the king, and that sort of thing. Basically to prove their opulence, you know. For a king to have a private musician, it's proven, it's used to prove their eliteness. Now, is this in America? Well, here's the deal. I would argue, now this is just a Tully argument, this is not a universal argument, and other people argue different ways. But I would argue that America has not produced its own high culture, but it's emulated other places' high culture. Um... You know, symphonies and junk. I mean, I mentioned my family members are in, are in symphonies. Um, that's kind of an emulation of a European thing. Uh, whenever America does have high culture, it's generally emulations of stuff from Europe or other continents that they're kind of trying to emulate. Um, I would argue that America does not has not made its own native high culture because America does not have a perpetual upper class or nobility. Uh, the key word there is perpetual. I am not saying that America doesn't have an upper class. It does. America doesn't have a nobility. America clearly does have an upper class. I mean, class is a huge thing in America. However, I would argue that it's not perpetual. Um, in America, you can become upper class 
I would argue only lasts for a couple generations. You know, um, you know, three or four generations. Then new, there's a lot more class mobility. People are coming up. People coming down. This is not like a place like Europe or Asia, where you have like lineages that go on for hundreds, and in the case of Asia, thousands of years. Uh, you don't have that in America. The the upper classes in America, we're talking maybe a hundred years at best, and even that, I would argue, it's moving around. You know, if you look about the the blue bloods in America. 100 years ago, your uh, Carnegie's, Rockefeller's, things like that. Uh, I would argue they would n- they're not still the upper class that they are now. You know, I've, I've met a few Roosevelt's uh, of the Teddy Roosevelt family. Uh, yeah, they have a pretty sweet name, but it's not like they're, like, royalty. They're still loaded and things like that. Uh, suffice to say, that is high culture. Not too much of a focus in this class. Uh, we're going to be reading uh, next week about Shakespeare in America. I think that's a pretty good example of how America takes what was actually kind of middling culture, if you talk about Shakespeare in his native habitat, uh, to what America thinks is high culture, but how it's, inter- how it's enjoyed can be kind of low. We'll get into that. Uh, next up is folk culture. Folk culture. All right, if you look at folk culture... Its old definition, it basically belongs to the entirety of a population outside of state culture. That is the old-fashioned, you know, Oxford English Dictionary definition of what is folk culture. Uh, It comes from the German word Volk. In fact, a lot of what we know about cultural history or cultural studies in general uh, comes from German stuff. Uh, The German have a great word called Volk. Um... Volk, it becomes the English word folk. Think about Volkswagen, the people's wagon. Kind of the general population. Think of the word folks. You know, when you say the word folks, it it's not really pretentious. It's just ordinary people. Ordinary folks. Uh, stuff that are... Um, the, the audience for folk culture is generally members of a particular group. Anybody a member of a group, but it generally has a a barrier to entry. Uh, Barrier of entry is basically like being a member of this group. It's generally not available for outsiders. It's not to be shared without... I mean, it can be shared with outsiders, but if you take another's folk culture, it can be viewed as cultural appropriation. Uh, However, you know, it's just things that... um, They can be enjoyed by members of a group, all members of a group. Uh, in time, it has gotten the designators of simple or uneducated. Uh, that can be the case. Generally, it has no barriers in terms of class. Uh, folk culture can theoretically be enjoyed by both high and low members of a particular class. Uh, for the purposes of this study, this is not simple. This is not uh, uneducated. It's basically group stuff. Uh, some really good examples of that. Uh, actually, the classic example are Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, that's probably the best example when you're talking about cultural studies of what is folk culture. Uh, Grimm's fairy tales, the Brothers Grimm, uh, they kind of went around Germany, collected all these old fairy tales. You know, your Snow Whites, your Sleeping Beauties, things like that. Uh, that's kind of the proto-example, the ur example of what people think about when they think about folk culture. Because these are stories that are, you know, these fairy tales that are told around the entire populace, you know, in the backwoods and in cities in Germany, and pretty much rich, poor, whatever, they all kind of tell these stories. 
They're very low barrier to entry. Um, sorry, very. if you're a member of the group, there's no barrier to entry. If you're outside the group, there's stuff you may not understand about it. Uh, another example I like to talk about is bluegrass music or Cajun music. You know, bluegrass music, it's played by, like, folks out in the country in Appalachia. It's just music. There's really no, like, formalized study behind it. I mean, you can study it at a conservatory, I suppose. But, you know, a lot of these musicians, they don't, like, maybe know how to read music. They just know how to play. Uh, around here, uh, Cajun culture is the best example for around here. Uh, I, I bet a lot of y'all, judging by your French-sounding last names, are probably Cajun or probably got some Cajun in you. Uh, you know, Cajun culture. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in Cajun culture, and it encompasses a lot of different things. I mean, when you talk about Cajun culture, it's not just food or music or language or religion or, like, family rituals. It's a lot of other different things that are kind of blended together that, for an outsider, might seem a little... Not weird, but there are definitely barriers to entry, even if you're fairly close. I mean, I'm originally from Baton Rouge, and I'm not, I have no Cajun ancestry whatsoever. And like 50 miles away from me, it's a lot of Cajun stuff, which, um, you know, it's not like they're rude to me about it. They're not saying, oh, tell you can't be a part of it. But it's definitely a different folk culture than what I'm used to. You know, it's definitely its own thing. Uh, I'm sure whenever we do a discussion about this in class, you're probably going to give me some Cajun culture examples, you know, f stuff that you've grown up with. That uh, might be unusual, but uh, for me, but for you, it's very normal. And that's folk culture. Uh, let's see, pictures of folk culture. There we go. There's some uh, Cajun, uh, actually, I think it's bluegrass. It's, I don't know. I know, that's bluegrass. It's bluegrass. They're playing bluegrass music, uh, Grimm's Fairy Tales, or it's Hansel and Gretel. Uh, very, very, you know, Grimm's fairy tales, folk culture. Uh, you can't have counter-folk culture. Uh, counter-folk culture is basically a folk culture that runs contrary to the mainline culture. Uh, best example of that is Gullah culture. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with Gullah culture. Uh, Gullah culture is found in South Carolina, in kind of the Sea Islands of South Carolina. Uh, these are, like, they started out as West uh, slaves from West Africa. However, because of the way that uh, rice plantations worked out in South Carolina, they're given a lot of autonomy, able to keep their own, uh, you know, pretty much uh, rice plantations in South Carolina. The slaves kind of were on their own. The plantation owner lived in Charleston, only came by maybe once a week or so. And so they're kind of left to, to do their own thing. And so with the Gullah, you have a lot of West African culture kind of mixing in with some American culture, but it definitely exists in contrast to the white slave master culture in South Carolina. Has its own language, has its own food. Uh, there's a lot of Gullah stories. I, I, uh, studies, not stories. There's Gullah stories, too. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a show called Gullah Gullah Island, which was, uh, they had, like, Muppets and junk. It was kind of cute. Uh, that being said, you can't have counter culture that's folk culture a little different than counterculture which we're going to talk about in just a second uh the next culture is the one that's probably the hardest to talk about when it comes to examples because of where we exist nowadays this is middle brow culture uh in fact i will ask you straight up whatever we discuss in class help me get examples of middle brow culture because i kind of rack my brain to think about it uh, middle brow culture is culture that is designed to uh, appeal directly to the middle class. 
it's got broad appeal, but not quite universal. You know, it's basically people who are of middle-class individuals. Um, it's, it's not really pretentious, per se. Uh, it's really seen as a name by the upper classes. Like, basically, upper class people are like, oh, this is stupid, or it's not worth our time. Uh, but unreachable by lower classes. Lower classes are like, huh, you know, this is, this is too much education, too much of a barrier to entry for us. Examples of middle brow culture, like I said, are very hard to come by. I've read a lot of different studies about it. Uh, the best two examples I can think of off the top of my head, uh, the first one is Reader's Digest. I would say Reader's Digest appeals to a very middle brow um, instinct. If you're unfamiliar with Reader's Digest, which you might be because it's not really around anymore, uh, it's a magazine that like has selections of books, and it's kind of like, you know, uh, you have like the Reader's Digest condensed versions of books, which it's like, it's, you know, these classic novels that are kind of reduced, but they're still in the classic novels, so like for an upper class, they're like, just read the novel. For a lower class person, they might not see the, um, you know, they may not have the ability to understand it for that sort of thing, or the literacy may not be so high, but it's this kind of middle-brow culture. Uh, that, like I said, it's not a great one nowadays. Um, I'd also say Oprah's Book Club, but Oprah's really hard to put into this category because Oprah tends to have very so broad of an appeal that she tends to be pop culture. But if you think about like Oprah's Book Club back when that was a thing, which might be before y'all were really aware of stuff, I'm sure y'all know who Oprah is, but Oprah used to have a book club and she's like, hey, we're reading this book. And uh, it was kind of a middle brow, middle classy thing, I would suggest, but it's still Oprah. Oprah has a very broad appeal. Middle brow culture is very hard to really define. Uh, I mean, there are clearly examples of middle class culture or like showing middle class existence in pop culture, but there's still pop culture, which we're mainly going to be focused on, is still too broad of an appeal to be really middle class culture. I'm sorry, middle brow culture. Uh, low culture. Low culture. For the sake of this class, it's culture that's designed to appeal only to people at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. Uh, it's really hard to define nowadays outside of pop culture. Uh, pop culture is just so prevalent nowadays, has so broad of an appeal, so low barriers to entry, that pretty much every uh, instance you can think of of low culture is probably pop culture now. Um, if you're thinking about shows or whatever that are just for low culture people, uh, your mind might go to, like, you know, the Real Housewives show. That, that's something which I think is... But it's not exactly low culture because they're, like, really, really rich people who, like, do horrible things. And it might be enjoyed a lot by middle-class people and poor people, uh, lower-class people, because it's available on TV everywhere. That's not really low culture. Tabloid culture might be considered low culture, perhaps. That's still, I don't know, the TMZ and junk is just so broad of an appeal. It's very hard to define in nowadays. Um, in U.S. history, probably the best example would be something like an eye-gouging contest. Uh, that was something that was done kind of frontier culture, 1700s, 1800s. Uh, they would really have these contests where basically like, dudes would fight each other and like try to gouge each other's eyes out to just prove their bravery, or, like see if they'd lose a finger in a fight to prove their bravery. Uh, that was definitely something only done by low-class low people kind of only with a low-class appeal. Uh, likewise, in Europe, a classic example is bear baiting. If you go one slide, you'll see bear baiting. 
basically, I don't know why everybody in that shot is wearing top hats. It wasn't really a high-class thing. Basically, with bear baiting, they would uh, chain a bear to a wall, and then they'd have these dogs try to attack it, and they'd take bets on who would die first, the, the bear or the, the dogs. Like, would the bear kill the dogs, or would the dogs kill the bear? Uh, that was really a thing for low-class people. Um, like I said, this one's kind of hard to find nowadays. Um, I might ask you for some you know, examples of low culture. Maybe you can think of some. It's really hard to define outside of pop culture, I'll tell you that. So finally, after all that preamble, we get to pop culture. Oh, nope, kidding. We do the counterculture. Uh, counterculture are subcultures that are existing in willing defiance. Um, sorry about that, had to get a drink. Uh, keyword there is willing defiance. There can be subcultures, there can be like, you know, things that are like, not within the mainstream, but counterculture is defiant in being in opposition. Uh, it can be anti-establishment, but not always, but it's clearly kind of existing in defiance to the norm. <coughs> They're mainly known for their opposition, all right? That's, I mean, it can be anti-establishment, but even if they're saying the uh, establishment shouldn't be undermined, they exist in uh, defiance to it. Uh, they're willingly willing to take on the role of the other. Uh, the other, if you've had me in the class before, you have heard me talk about the other a million times. If not, here's a very quick crash course in the other. Um, okay, very quickly. It's very hard to define yourself by what you are. It's just hard. Uh, generally, as, a, as an individual or as a society, we believe that we have these traits and these attributes. It can be hard to define ourselves. Uh, for instance, if I said, hey, what are you? You're like, I'm a good student. And you're like, well, how am I? I'm like, well, how are you a good student? You, it, after a while, I'd be like, well, I'm not like Harold. You know, Harold's a lazy bum. He doesn't show up to class. He doesn't study. You're defining yourself by what you're not as opposed to what you are. And in history, particularly in cultural history, we call that the other. The other is a thing that we as an individual society define ourselves by, by saying what we are not. Uh, in American history, a lot of times it's Native Americans or African Americans that white society defines themselves in opposition to. And in countercultures, a lot of times they are okay with being the other. They are defiantly proud to take on the role of the other. A uh, classic example we're actually going to talk about in this class are hippies. You know, the 1960s. Think about the hippie movement. They exist in opposition to the mainstream consumer culture. You know, be a good boy, go to work, go to college. You know, don't do drugs, only have sex with your spouse. Hippies are like, we're throwing all that away, free love, drugs, all that good stuff. Uh, religious extremists, um, you know, I'd say, uh, you know, your ISIS-type groups, uh, they are willing to say that, you know, that's probably an extreme example, but other religious groups kind of define themselves by who they aren't and, you know, by uh, virtue of their beliefs or whatever. Uh, you, know, you know, is fundamentalist Islamic extremists, that can be a very uh, extreme example, but a lot of religious groups say that, you know, um, if I could go with just, like, basic Christian nomenclature, the idea like, oh, you know, we're in the world, but we're not of the world, uh, worldly things, what we define ourselves against, that's something you see in a lot of churches. 
So that, it's it's not necessarily an extreme thing. Um, internet subgroups, internet user groups. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of people online that are willing to define themselves uh, by what they're not. Um, I'm sure y'all can give me a lot more examples I've never heard of because y'all are online way more than I am. Okay, that said, finally, we get to pop culture, which is who we are really focusing on for this class. This is culture that is designed to have as broad of an appeal as pop. Possible. Popular? <laughs> Possible. Hence the term pop. Popular. Popular in the sense that it has a majority appeal. It pretty much has no barrier of entry. It's often accused of being crude, simplistic, or void of substance because it is so broad in its appeal. Um, I'm sure you can think of a lot of different pop culture. In fact, whenever, maybe whenever you heard, first heard of this class, you're like, wow, that seems kind of uh, simple. Kind of, you know, maybe it's going to be crude stuff. Maybe it's going to be void of substance. Um, as you're going to see, this class has substance. Sorry. <laughs> now, I would argue, uh, hence why I put Telly here, I would argue that pop culture is unique to America because of the plurality of cultures here in the United States. You know, if you talk about the America being a melting pot, the idea that, you know, you have all these different nationalities, all these different immigrants, all these different races and ethnic groups and religions and whatever, kind of coming together to form this American identity, I would say popular culture is really something that really is shown within the United States because we can have so many different other cultures as well, and the thing that binds us has to be very broad in its appeal. I'd say that's, that it kind of makes pop culture, I don't want to say uniquely American, but distinctly American. Maybe even uniquely American. I, I can't think of many other countries, even in history, that have had just as broad of a cultural, cultural appeal without being folk culture. Uh, because once you get into folk culture, there's barriers to entry from the outsider. American pop culture is designed to have an appeal to pretty much anybody. You don't even have to be an American to get into American pop culture. In fact, that's one of the reasons why America in the world has had such cultural dominance, it can be argued, uh, with, with our pop culture, is because it just has such a broad appeal. It's often deemed to be democratic. The idea that pop culture, you know, the majority gets to decide here, you know, the, the, it appeals to the majority of people, so it makes it a democratic type of culture. If a smaller group of people want it, or if a different group of people want pop culture, pop culture will shift. Pop culture has a pretty good track record of being in touch with the times. Uh, that's one thing we're going to talk about in the, over the course of this class in America. It's basically in different time periods, in different decades, different pop culture really reflects the zeitgeist, another German term, literally just means time spirit, spirit of the times, of the different decades. And pop culture, I would argue, more than other culture, is more adaptive and easier to really get into and really change. It's probably the most adaptive of all the cultures. It's also very dependent upon new technologies for access. We're going to talk a lot about technologies in this course. We're going to talk a lot about how new communication technology and how a lot of pop culture is dependent upon new waves of communication, new waves of technology. Pop culture is often very tied to technology. 
there's like going to be a culture that comes around a new technology, and a lot of times it's going to have a very low barrier to entry because the technology is so new, maybe getting the technology has a higher barrier to entry. A lot of times, the newer the technology, the more broad and often the more conservative the message. Uh, we're we're going to get into that once we talk about radio, TV, stuff like that. But just think about it. I mean, um, you know, uh, TikTok. I'm sure that's been on the news a lot lately. I'm sure some of you are on TikTok. Ten-second little videos. What are the most popular TikToks? The ones that have the broadest appeal. You know, if you make a TikTok that's nothing but inside jokes, um, it might be funny for you and your friends, and you're probably going to laugh your head off, but it's not going to go viral. Uh, it's not going to have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of likes. You know, same thing with these YouTube and Instagram influencers and stuff like that. The ones who get millions of likes and make tons of money have the broadest appeal. Can be the most simplistic, but sometimes simple doesn't mean stupid. Some, well, a lot of times it does, but... You know, to craft something that's basic to understand with a very broad appeal sometimes takes a lot of thought and process. Sometimes it's just idiots on TikTok and YouTube. I'm not going to give you an example of pop culture right now because there are tons. It's called, uh, <laughs> this class is nothing but pop culture. It's the name, so I'm not going to get into that. Last term we need to know about is consumer culture. Consumer culture is very, very linked to pop culture. In fact, a lot of times when you're talking about pop culture, you're talking about consumer culture. This is another fairly American thing. Uh, it comes about in America in the period between the 1890s and 1920s. <coughs> Pardon me, I coughed. A guy by the name of Warren Sussman. Warren Sussman, who we're going to be reading part of his book in this class, uh, you don't have to buy it. I'll give you these selections. Don't worry. Warren Sussman is the guy who comes up with the term consumer culture, and he argues it come, comes about in the 1920s. Uh, other historians, in fact, one of the guys I worked with at LSU, uh, he, they argue 1890s. They say by the 1890s, pretty much America was 100% you know, set with this kind of consumer culture-centric uh, society. Um, like I said, there's a lot of different debate, debate about that. That's what we as historians do. We debate stuff. Um, but sometime between 1890 and 1920, American society changed. Aided by new forms of technology, consumer culture turns those who, do, who enjoy culture into consumers. The thing I want you to understand, especially when we talk about pop culture, culture as a commodity something that can be purchased. You are purchasing art. You have become the patron. The biggest thing with pop culture, is, as opposed to earlier forms of culture, is the way that patronage works. Earlier forms of culture, the artist knew their patron. You know, Leonardo da Vinci, or whoever was working for the Medicis, knew their patron. They knew them by name, they knew what they liked, they knew what they wanted. J.S. Bach, back when he was working for that church, he knew the church, he knew the, the, the pastors, he knew the type of music that they wanted, and they craft their art for their patron. That is Art 101. If you're making it just for yourself, you do what you like. But if you're going to make money off of it, if you want to make money, you appeal to the interest and the taste of your patron. 
But with consumer culture, art becomes a primarily consumer good, particularly pop culture art. That's a difference between this and other uh, forms of culture we talked about. For instance, folk culture. All right, folk culture. Uh, your Cajun culture. You can't really buy it. Yes, there are products that are kind of Cajun. You know, there's food and stuff you can most certainly purchase. But that's it's it mainly exists as something just for the people, not as a product to buy. As opposed to, you know, music. As opposed to a mu- popular music nowadays. As opposed to a a video game or a movie or a TV show or something. Those are now products for purchase. They are culture, they are art that is designed to be bought. And the thing with consumer culture is that in order to remain financially viable, this appeal has to be available to all customers in many different formats. Remember, if you're if you're producing popular culture, you can't just appeal to one person. I mean, you can, but just be aware that you're not gonna make a lot of money at it. You're, you know, your 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 commercial appeal is limited. Likewise, with consumer culture in general, those who take place in the culture are also consumers. There is a lot of emphasis placed upon the items you purchase defining you. That is something that's happening a lot not nowadays, and it's actually expanded into politics, which is interesting. Uh, for instance, um, I'll just talk about me, all right? I'm a Mac person. I, I have an iPhone. I'm recording this on my Mac laptop. Okay? Apple versus Android when it comes to your smartphone, you know? That can be viewed as a way to define yourself. It can be a way to have your identity. You know, you might feel a kinship with other Apple people or other Android people. You know, you might say that's part of your identity. Um... All right, this is going to date me, but growing up as a kid, the, the, big, uh, the big video game war was between Nintendo and Sega, and I was clearly a Nintendo kid. <coughs> Ironically, we didn't have a TV, but uh, I had a Game Boy, and I loved Nintendo, and that, that was who I was. I bought Nintendo products, darn doggone it. You know, Coke or Pepsi, that sort of thing, and your product defines you. Uh, it's been getting into politics nowadays. Um, you know, Nike for a while, or or wasn't it like Goya beans like a month ago? Like the president of Goya said that Donald Trump was cool, and all of a sudden Goya beans becomes a political statement. The idea that buying a product can become more than just buying a product and become become part of your identity, or something like Chick Fil A. Buying Chick Fil A, some see as a religious statement. Same thing with going to Hobby Lobby. There's all these different things where buying a product isn't just buying a product, it's part of your identity, that is consumer culture. There's a switch between producer values and consumer values that happens in the 1890s and 1920. The idea being that beforehand, America's really placed emphasis upon what you make, you know, are you a farmer, what can you produce, versus after the 1920s, what can you buy? Uh, Sussman also argues that there's a change from a culture of character to a culture of personality. Uh, we're going to talk about that a lot more as we go through the class. But just think about it. You know, one ca- one's character is who you are. It's not necessarily expressed. It's done through actions. 
Your personality is expressed through words. It's expressed through your persona. It's expressed by how you're viewed. And the idea being that after 1920, once we switch to a consumer society, we become a society that places a great deal of emphasis upon personality as opposed to character. Uh, in a couple weeks, you're going to read about uh, Babe Ruth. Uh, Babe Ruth, the baseball player, and kind of how he embodied this personality. It wasn't enough that he just hit, ro- hit home runs. It was how he hit home runs. Uh, like I said, I could go upon this for a lot. Um, we're going to talk about this pretty much all class. There are tons of overlap with pop culture. And theoretically, this type of culture is interchangeable after 1920. Uh, we're going to get into that for a long time over this class. Uh, media. Media. Uh, I don't have a slide about this, but you do need to understand the term media. Uh, media is the plural of the word medium. Uh, medium is the manner by which information is conveyed. Phrase I want you to know for this class, the medium is the message. How stuff is delivered, the format upon what is how it's delivered, is part of the message. How a message is conveyed typically gives a lot of insight into the message itself. Now, typically with media, and underline word typically, the newer the medium, the less radical a message will be. Generally, the newer the medium, the less radical the message is going to be. Uh, there's an element of not wanting to overload or shocking audience too much all at once. You know, if the medium itself is brand new, you might want to have kind of conventional messages. You don't want to overthrow people too, too much. Uh, the final thing we're going to talk about very briefly, I've talked about it quite a bit over this, and, you know, we are running out of time, I suppose, uh, is Art. Art is designed to be consumed, all right? You do get that, right? All art is designed to be consumed in some form or fashion. Uh, This is not to say, like, you know, if you're just playing the piano by yourself or just drawing to make yourself happy, nothing wrong with that, and you can, but pretty much, like, you want to show it to somebody. You 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 don't just do it and, all right, I did it, and that's that. You know, if you get really good at playing the piano, you, you, you don't want to, like, hide it from everybody. You want to show it. You want to, you know, show off. Show it's cool. Artists need patrons because they need support. You know, if you want to make a living at being an artist, you need somebody to pay for your work and to enjoy it. Now, in high culture, this audience base is very small because there's only a few people barriers to entry. It doesn't need to have a very broad appeal because pretty much you know your patrons. In consumer culture, the artists may not be directly aware of their patrons, and the art is typically not live. Okay? Generally, in consumer culture, you don't see the artist in person. Um, I know now with, like, TikTok and Instagram streaming and whatnot, it can be live. You can have interaction. But generally, in consumer culture, the artist may not be aware of their audience individually, if that makes any sense. They know they have an audience. They know that they have fans, but they don't know necessarily individual things about them. Uh, Does this change? Yes, it can. May we be undergoing a shift with things like Patreon? Yeah, we we might be. But in general, you know, um, who's somebody who's popular? Beyonce. She just issued that thing on Disney+, Plus, uh, that movie, uh, Blackest King. Um, Beyonce doesn't know all of her fans in the Beehive. 
in the big sense. She knows, you know, she appreciates their support, their financial support. She might like some stuff of their stuff on Instagram or whatever. But by and large, you don't individually know all the people who are your patrons. You don't know all your fans. You don't know all the people who are financially supporting you. That is a huge difference and something that really marks consumer culture in that the audience is so broad and has and somewhat anonymous. You know, you can anonymously enjoy culture in this time period or you can choose to show it off, but still they're getting that support. Now, what I want you to think about uh, when we go talk about discussion, number one, I want to start, I want you to give me different forms of culture. Uh, I would love for you to give me more examples of low culture, but I want you to think more about your relationship between the pop culture you enjoy and your identity. Is your culture your identity? Of course it is, but think about how the stuff you buy defines you. How you either let it define you, how you want it to let it define you, or how it defines you in general. Are there things you enjoy you don't share? Are there products you buy you don't talk about? These are the things I want you to think about before we get into the class itself. Uh, like I said, this is probably the least, not probably, this is the least chronological about uh, this course. Uh, the reading you're going to have next week, which we, you can discuss it next week because it's the first week. Uh, generally, I want you to have the reading done before the discussion, but uh, this, this week I'll give you a little bit of leeway. Uh, this week's reading has to do with Shakespeare and how Shakespeare was enjoyed in the United States of America kind of, uh, you know, before the Civil War, pre-Civil War. Um, a lot of this class is going to be post-Civil War. That's just the way it's going to work. We're talking about somewhat pre-Civil War. We get into Menageries and B.T. Barnum. P.T. Did I say B.T. Barnum? P.T. Barnum. Uh, Barnum is a pretty good example. Actually, he's probably, I would argue, he's one of the most important Americans when it comes to pop culture in general. But um, how he views America, and just also, I want you to think about what makes America American. What is it that about American pop culture that makes it definitively American? Now, I'm not talking state culture, you know, don't say like the Stars and Stripes and the National Anthem, but what is it in American society that really defines Americanness and what makes it so broad of an appeal? So be thinking about that. Um, your quiz for this week is mainly about the lecture. I don't think there's anything about the reading in the quiz. If there is, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, that being said, this is week one, so uh, I would like some volunteers for leading the discussion next week, which is mainly going to be about um, mainly about this and different types of culture. If you want to go ahead and talk about the Shakespeare, that's great, but probably hold off Shakespeare a little bit. Remember, in general, our class discussions are about the reading of that week. Read before the class discussion. Also, listen before the class discussion. But that being said, this is the first week, so that will about do it for today. Uh, with that, this is Dr. Tully. Um, like I said, next, next more, the rest of the classes are going to be a lot more concrete, uh, a lot less ethereal, more concrete. But that said, this is Dr. Tully. Have a good one.